here we are once again, just you and me, just you and me, one listener and Jacob Givens, your host, guiding you on a journey through tunes and music. You know, we we do have guests returning to the show. They will be back. That was a, I really strung out that guests there, didn't I? We will have guests coming to the podcast again soon, but for now, you're stuck with me, and I'm going to guide you through an album. It's a, it's a lesser-known album by a small band that you've probably never heard of. So, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to talk about Nirvana's Nevermind. Let's kick things off like we normally do by going in here and saying to myself, what's important? Where's the, there it is. Today's episode is recorded at Believe Limited in Silver Lake, California. Believe specializes in entertainment that affects change and is responsible for various forms of content, including feature films, documentaries, and podcasts, much like this one. You can check out their work at BelieveLTD.com. Believe Limited, we do special things. Well, welcome back. Um, Yeah, you know, I made a joke at the beginning. I made a little joke. I do that from time to time on this show. I make little silly comments like a band called Nirvana that you've never heard of. Nirvana. Good old Nirvana. Yeah, you've heard of them. I think you're familiar. A lot of times credited as really being the turning point for music in the 90s. And... They are not wrong. Critics and music fans alike, they're not wrong. I was there. I witnessed it. I saw it happen. And so you can sit there all you like and be like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. But if you were alive in 1991, 1992, that era, you witnessed it firsthand. And that's why I wanted to talk about this because of all the albums that I've done so far, I've been thinking about, you know, I'm going to be having guests on the show to talk about other people's music and as we get further and further along, there's obviously going to be more obscure or, you know, side projects or bands that are lesser known. But I was like, right out of the gate, you, you need to hit the big ones. Um, and you might be asking yourself, you might be like, well, what about Nevermind? Do I not already know? I mean, that's true. I don't know if I can sit here and tell you a bunch of facts about when it was recorded that's really going to blow your mind. But one thing I can do and one thing I can talk about that I think this show is worth is taking you back to 1991 when it happened and really sharing that personal experience because I bet some of you went through something almost exactly the same because it was a massive shift. Nirvana's Nevermind came out in September 24th of 1991. That's when the album released. And during that time, up until this point, music was just different. In a lot of ways, it was different. And here's the thing. When we're talking about music, there's somebody out there who's way cooler than I was who lived in the Pacific Northwest near Seattle or Olympia, and they went to cool shows and they saw the shift early and they they were way plugged in, but the rest of us weren't. You know what I mean? Like the analogy would be, let's say you've got 90 people in a room and, you know, 10 of them over there And so you, these, okay, this is a bad analogy. Here we go. 
you've got a hundred people, got a hundred people in a room and the hundred people in a room have never seen the color green before. They've never seen it. And then one guy happened to see green um, right before he got into the room and he comes in and everybody's so excited because they saw green and he's like, yeah, I saw it already. That's pretty much what it's like in music when the majority of us experience this big life changing event. And there's like one person who got a chance to see the color before you did. And they're just like, yeah, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. I saw green, whatever. It's cool. I guess, I guess, I guess it's pretty amazing for you guys. But for me, I'm like, whatever. And so with music, it's the same thing. People just always are like, you know, especially when I share this kind of stuff, they're like, oh, well, I actually knew, you know, I saw Mudhoney play live and I knew this already. And I'm like, yeah, well, for a lot of us who weren't plugged into live music and, and indie music and zines and the DIY scene and all that kind of stuff, it's like it just was being fed to us and given to us by what we could touch, which was MTV or the radio. That's the only place. And I really remember when I saw the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit, which is, that that's the turning point. The turning point is I'm watching MTV, and I think it's after hours. I think I'm not supposed to be watching it. And when I was looking up about when it premiered, it said 120 minutes. I think it said like September 27th or something like that, right around the time that the album releases. But I have um, a bone to pick with that. I don't know if that's accurate. Because I feel like I saw it earlier than the album being out, and I feel like I saw it in a very discreet way. I don't remember there being a a bunch of hubbub about them playing it. It seems like it came out very uh, gently. Like it just kind of, we were just watch. I was just watching it late at night, and then here comes this video, and I was like, wait, wait, what was that? What did I just experience? What did I just witness? It wasn't like a, a VJ going like, and here we go, world premiere. It wasn't Matt Pinfield going, all right, you guys, and we got the world premiere from Nirvana. You know, he wasn't doing that. It was, it just came out of nowhere. And I remember as I watched the video, which is this school gymnasium, and, you know, Nirvana's playing, it's Dave Grohl, Chris Novoselic, Kurt Cobain, and they've got these cheerleaders, and the cheerleaders are wearing these black, you know, cheerleader outfits, leotards that have the Anarchy A on them right there, and they're kind of, you know, gothy, you know, alter- alternative girls, and they're the cheerleaders, and then there's this crowd of kids, and there's a janitor pushing his broom back and forth, and there's fog, and it's kind of yellowy and kind of dirty, grimy looking. And the, the song just had this energy as the, the moshing and their, you know, builds and builds and builds. And there was something about just the way that this song sounded that I had never heard anything like it before. Me personally, uh, many of us. And I've been trying to think about before I started this episode, I was like, what is it about Nirvana that was so different and why it was such a huge shift for us? And we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. But this album came out, uh, Nirvana being a Seattle band, um, you know, didn't have this permanent lineup until pretty much while they're recording, never mind. Um, and they kind of record a, a lot of these songs twice. The band, you know, Bleach comes out and they're doing well. They're getting a lot of notoriety. They're touring with Sonic Youth. And getting a lot of attention for it. And at the time, 
I believe, you know, Chad Channing was the drummer that played on Bleach. He was the drummer. This is pre-Dave Grohl, Chad Channing. And they had like five different drummers cycle through. I can't remember them all. Dale Crover from the Melvins was one. Um, I feel like he may have played on that Sonic Youth tour. But they're they're building up momentum. They're getting they're getting more and more uh, noticed. And so they basically they get a chance to head into the studio and record with Butch Vig like an eight song first pass at at these songs with Butch Vig in April of 1990. They go through. And on these sessions, they've got Chad Channing, and um, they use a lot of these demos to kind of shop a deal, you know, because they're trying to figure out how to how to grow past Sub Pop, which is in a kind of a financial uh, distress this time. They're about to go bankrupt, and they basically get picked up by DGC, by Geffen. And I believe one of the recommendations for getting them to that label was Sonic Youth. I believe that... Um, Thurston and Kim had recommended Nirvana because there was this mutual adoration. Kurt adored Sonic Youth and they thought he was amazing. And so they get onto DGC Geffen and now it's time to do the album like for real. It's time to do an official release. And so they go back into the studio in April of 1991 again with Butch Vig to record these songs. And they had laid down some of them before but Smells Like Teen Spirit was, of course, this is the song that the world is going to hear first. So let's talk a little bit about how that song came to be. It wasn't on those first eight songs. They, he hadn't written it yet. And he was a little nervous about when he showed it to the bandmates. You know, uh, Dave Grohl is now in the band um, during these, this time uh, for, the, for the official recording because Chad's out and Dave's in. And uh, I can't remember how Dave got got over there and how he ended up getting with the group. Gosh. Um, but he's in the band and they're starting to lay down these songs and he's nervous at first. Uh, Kurt is nervous to show his bandmates smells like teen spirit. Cause he thinks it's like a Boston ripoff of more than a feeling. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's been said later that there was a Pixies comparison, but, um, at the time, I don't think anybody was really making that connection, uh, to the Pixies. I mean, maybe you were, but, that's really kind of a looking back and going, oh, yeah, I can hear that. But he was nervous that it sounded like Boston's more than a feeling. And he apparently he showed it to Chris and Dave and Chris was like, that song's ridiculous. You know what I mean? It just didn't. It just seemed so silly. But as it developed and got more and more polished behind it, they recorded it on a boombox. They showed it to Butch Vig. He was really excited about that song. He knew it was going to be a hit. And um he ba- so so they have this song and the title smells like Teen Spirit. If you don't know the story, a lot of people who are huge Nirvana fans already know this story. But the story on how the title smells like Teen Spirit came to be is at the time um, I, I believe Kurt Cobain is living with Dave Grohl in this uh, this tiny apartment, and Kurt is dating Toby Vale from Bikini Kill. Bikini Kill and an iconic. Uh, you know, the the girl riot, the punk uh, feminist movement that was happening with Kathleen Hanna. So they're hanging out. They're drinking all night long. They're having this, you know, this this party at their house, at their place. And and they're talking all night. They're drinking. And Kathleen Hanna takes a I've heard two different accounts. One is a Sharpie. The other one is a spray paint can. Now, she goes and writes in the wall in spray paint or on Kurt's wall. Kurt smells like teen spirit. Now, she does this 
and they're drinking. They're having this night. And the next morning, Kurt sees it and he thinks, oh, yeah, we were talking about some revolutionary shit. We were we were talking about like you know getting the today's youth like excited and amped up and like snapping out of a dream you know and like really getting after it and he he was thinking that must be why Kathleen Hanna wrote that on the wall but the truth was Toby Vale his girlfriend at the time wore the girl's deodorant Teen Spirit that was the name of a deodorant at the time that had a, a specific fragrance to it so she would wear that deodorant and because. Kurt was her boyfriend. Kathleen was making a joke that Kurt smells like Toby's deodorant. That was it. There was no political or like really, you know, uprising idea behind it. It was just saying, Kurt, you smell like Toby's deodorant. And that's what she wrote on the wall. Kurt, you smell like Kurt smells like teen spirit. But the funny thing is he never put that together. He originally wanted to call. um, He wanted to call this song that you know as Teen Spirit now, he wanted to call it Anthem. That was what he wanted to call it. And then I think he asked, and and when he was with Toby, who their relationship, by the way, was really a big part of Nevermind because they break up shortly before he starts writing a lot of these songs. Um, And several of them are about her, about that relationship. But he basically says, he says he wants to name the song Anthem. And I think Bikini Kill had a song called Anthem. And so he decides to call it Smells Like Teen Spirit. And it's not even until the song releases as a single that somebody informs him about the deodorant. <laughs> so he had no idea. And that was is very, very Kurt Cobain. That's very in line with him because he just couldn't be bothered by whatever was popular or cool. You know what I mean? That was That was really why this band their meteoric rise to success. And then it just completely, it just, you know, it ended too quickly because he was the last person who I think was ready to experience what he experienced. And there's been a ton written so many biographers and people who know way more than I do about Kurt and, you know, him taking his own life. And of course there's theories. I can even tell you guys that when I was in a, a senior in high school, I think it was maybe a senior. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen her year, but I wrote a paper on, did Courtney have any part to do with his demise? I wrote a paper on it because I was asked to write about something that was maybe unsolved and I wrote a paper on it. And, um, back then, given that this was the late nineties, the mid to late nineties, there wasn't a lot of internet. It was like dial up. You couldn't get a lot of information. And there was a lot of, um, there was like a detective on the case at the time. But I remember my conclusion at the time was like, I don't think so because all the signs led to somebody struggling with addiction, um, you know, drug addiction and depression and anxiety. It, 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 you know, now you guys may, this may upset people because there might be people, people who are like, no, it absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. She did. But, um, I don't think so. Um, even back then, I just think that, um, the trajectory of his success, it just kind of unraveled and, and, um, you go back and you look at interviews with Kurt and he just doesn't like anything. <laughs> he's just always like, that was stupid. That sucks. And he's just very, you know, has a, a, a negative outlook on life and kind of the world in general, you know, just doesn't like a lot of things. The things he does like are, are counterculture. And that was a huge part of the nineties and Nirvana. And this whole scene was 
so much of our identity was around what is being a sellout or being counterculture or being cool and uncool. And it was amazing because you'd have friends that would love a band and then you'd hang out with them the next time and they'd be like, yeah, I don't like that band anymore. Yeah, it's, it's too mainstream. You know, it's just, yeah, it's just sold out. I'm just not into it or like, yeah, I used to, I used to wear that stuff, but that's just, everybody does that now. It's just so it's like lame, you know, if everybody's doing it and Kurt even had that instinct, I think before this album, the original title of Nevermind was going to be sheep. And that was his, his original title for the album was sheep because he wanted to criticize the fact that the people that would probably fall in love with this album would just be going along with it because everybody else would, you know, like already going into it with this sneer of like, but that's also the appeal of the music. You know, it made a lot of sense to me at that age as a teenager, um, all that kind of mad at the world, Holden Caulfield energy (laughs) that's coming from this band. It really makes a lot of sense. But I said earlier, I would say, what was it that really changed the mainstream music from from what we had before to this. And here's what I'll tell you. There, my son, my son, the other day I was playing Smells Like Teen Spirit because I recently got the vinyl. And he's 13. And I said, you know this song. And he goes, of course. He said, I've heard this song, you know, played a million times since I was a little kid. So he, it's been on the radio. It's been everywhere. So for him, Smells Like Teen Spirit was this song that's just always been there. It's just always been there. Ever since he was very young, he knew the sound of those chords, kicking in the distortion, the sound of Kurt Cobain's voice, whether he paid attention or not, it's just always there. But for those of us who grew up during this time, there was a time that that song didn't exist. It, it wasn't real. It hadn't come to fruition. So there was life before, <laughs> before Smells Like Teen Spirit and life after. And so for those of us who were experiencing this up until this point, definitely the eighties was and and up into this point, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, man. Like that's what it was. There was this glorification, this party energy that if you're a rock star, if you're in a band, if you play music, it's going to be all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And Nirvana came along and said, the sex could be depressing and meaningless. The drugs could kill you. And rock and roll is a corporate construct. And you've been sold lies. You know what I mean? And there were other counterculture bands and punk bands that were doing that in the 80s. Absolutely. Absolutely. You come at me and you say, oh, you kidding me? Fucking Black Flag and, and, and Fugazi and all these bands in, in that era that were really a counterculture and just pushing back on the mainstream. But during this time, it was a huge thing for that note, that current to hit on MTV. For us to be watching and going, wow, there's not there's not a lot of glory in this um, industry, in this music industry. It's not the sex could be you know meaningless and pointless and lead to more depression. The drugs will unravel your life and cause you to escape and disappear in a heroin. And then here we are on heroin again after Alice in Chains. And then um, and then the yeah the rock and roll it's not real. It's a, it's a corporate construct. So that's what I think really changed. 
And all of us were paying attention. And we were going, oh, so the guys with the leather pants, the big hair, you know, doing jump kicks in the air and having, you know, babes on their arm, that's all, it's all kind of fake and phony and, and a meaningless life, you know. I think that's what it was. I mean, hey, I still like some hair bands and I still like that stuff. I still enjoy that music. But it was a, it was a revelation. It was a wake-up call. And it was kind of teaching all of us like, oh, we need to ask questions about authority. We need to ask questions about why we're being told to do the things that we're doing. And this was a really interesting time for music in all um, genres. You know, you had in the early 90s, this was when the sticker, the parental advisory sticker was getting dropped on things because of content and language. And I have a funny story because, um, so Smells Like Teen Spirit drops in the fall of 1991, and I ask for the cassette tape for Christmas. I get it for Christmas. And um, I open it up, and I'm visiting my family in Georgia. And uh, I have these sweet cousins in, in Georgia, Laura and Jennifer. And it's Christmas morning. We're all kids. We're all young teens. And I open up my my Nevermind cassette tape and I unfold it. And there's Kurt Cobain giving the bird. He's giving the finger. He's got it like pressed up against his lip. And my cousin Laura is sitting right next to me and she goes, that's just rude. You bought his music and he's giving you the finger. That's what he's going to do. You just bought his music and he's going to give you the finger. And I always thought that was hilarious. Because it was this kind of like, <laughs> yeah, you bought the guy's music and he's like, eh, fuck you. You know, I don't know. That was kind of the attitude. It was like, I don't need you. Um, but yet, in a weird way, he does need us. He doesn't need us. What a catch-22 for this band, right? The fame and the success were a, pl- a way that he could share his talent, his artistry, and just blow everybody's minds, but resenting it all the way, always resenting it, always not wanting this to be there. Um, but that that cassette tape story about my cousin always makes me laugh. That, By the way, there was this song um, on Nevermind. There was a hidden track after Something in the Way, um, they were in the studio, and I think they were doing a they were doing a recording of Lithium, and in the studio, and there was this song, and it's now referred to as Endless Nameless, and this was supposed to be the hidden track on the album. It was supposed to do something in the way, and then roll into Endless Nameless, and I guess when they were manufacturing like the first fifty thousand copies of the album, it wasn't on there, it wasn't on that on that version because there was some miscommunication about whether or not to include this random song, which was just them kind of, you know, fucking around after a, a, a take of Lithium. It was this song. And so then they're like, hey, why isn't the hidden track on there? And so then they correct it. It's the first 50,000 copies. And I got to tell you guys, I don't think I still have my Nirvana cassette tape. I think it is long gone. Um Sadly, I wish I would have had the wherewithal to have kept that thing for so long. But once you went from cassettes to CDs, a lot of us were like, well, okay, it's time to get rid of these cassettes and move all to my CDs now. But I'm pretty sure that my cassette tape of of, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit did not have Endless Nameless on it. I remember listening to that tape backwards and forwards. I never remember after something in the way there being a hidden track. I did not hear that until years later when I got a, a CD version. So it's kind of crazy. I really wish I would have kept that copy because it, it would have been kind of a cool collector's item to have this tape that had Endless Nameless, the untitled hidden track on the album 
that wasn't on there. Um, but we get into kind of the process of recording this album. And, you know, we talked about Smells Like Teen Spirit. And then there's these songs um, in Bloom, which is really kind of a, a jab at the at the bros that are going to, you know, the people that don't understand that Nirvana and Kurt Cobain's words are anti-sexist, anti, uh, you know, <laughs> anti-racist, anti, like against all the kind of frat bros and, you know, trashy people that are out there in the world just like, yeah, man, you know, he, that song is really, you know, poking fun at them. And, you know, he's the one all our pretty songs likes to sing as long uh, sing along, but likes to shoot his gun and he don't know what it means. You know, it's like a, you're, you're going to sing along this song and you don't know that I'm, I'm saying you don't get what I'm talking about. Um, come as you are. That was when they were trying to figure out what singles to drop for the album. Come as you are had been brought up, I think by the label. And it's interesting. I didn't know this until recently, but I think there was a little bit of nervousness because um, some of the songs, you know, there was always that accusation of like inspiration from other bands and copying or barring or whatever. And honestly, I do not think that there was an intentional, um, there was a, an intentional, uh, reason to, to copy for any reason, but, uh, Oh man, what's the name of the band? It's called eighties. I'm drawing a bank blank on the song. I'm going to find it right now. So I can, there it is. Killing joke. If you go and listen to the song by killing joke. Song 80s, the opening sounds like the guitar part from Come As You Are, but just a little faster. So they're similar, but, uh, you know, we say this sometimes in stand-up and comedy is that sometimes there are things that fall into your subconscious that you don't even realize that are there. I don't even think that, sure, they're joke thieves, of course, but sometimes you land on a premise or an idea and you may have heard it before. You may have heard somebody say it at a, at a comedy show five years before and it's just kind of rolling around in your brain like a BB. And um, I mean like a BB gun and not like a, I'm not, I'm not pronouncing like bebe BB like Moira from Schitt's Creek. <laughs> um, anyway, it's rolling around in your brain and you forget that you heard it elsewhere. So you pick up your guitar and you play a couple chords and go, oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, it's kind of cool. And it leads you somewhere else. And then it isn't until you've written and recorded the song or performed the song. And somebody's like, yeah, it sounds a lot like uh, that opening guitar part for Killing Joke 80s. And you're like, oh, shit. So I think that that was one of the reasons why they decided not to release that right out of the gate as the single. And then they they let it go. They let it go. They're like, it's fine. Um, and then you got songs like Breed, which, you know, some of these were from that original um, recording of the album the year prior. Breed was on there, but it was initially called Emodium. And that was named after they were on tour with um, Tad and Tad Doyle had uh, a lot of diarrhea. <laughs> and so Kurt named that song Emodium based on his use of Emodium. And um, but they changed it to Breed. Um, Lithium. That's another video that I think I, I'll always remember. Oh, I I, I kind of skipped over the uh, In Bloom video, which was that great Ed Sullivan show, black and white, you know, such a cool video um, that they did right there. And I think that was Kevin Kerslake, who was a very good music video director at the time. I could be getting that wrong. Um, but that one's really cool because it, it's that Ed Sullivan, you know, they, they've got the glasses on and the suits. And it's black and white, and then it keeps cutting between them playing like all prim and proper to them smashing the set. 
and I, that's what I wanted to talk about is that for me watching Nirvana on videos, Lithium, which I think was originally supposed to be an animated video, they they he wanted this this video and it was going to take four months to make the animation for it. So they were like, yeah, forget it. So he made a video of all this concert footage. And, you know, the thing about Lithium and the thing about this album and Nirvana in general is it's a lot of that quiet, loud, quiet, loud. And if you listen to the show, you know that's one of my favorite things about music is that sound, that quiet, loud, quiet, loud from Pixies and Pumpkins and so much of music styles that I love. They're quiet, loud. Um, but this video, Lithium, there's live shows and it's just you see the chaos the smashing of guitars, the smashing of drums, the the absolute you know mosh insanity of these concerts, and I remember looking at this video and being like, I'm scared, I'm scared to go to a Nirvana show because I thought, I it just looks like you might get trampled at this thing, you know what I mean? And there was just so much chaotic energy on on the stage. But that was the thing about having this band that just didn't want to be in the mainstream. They just had this. I don't give a fuck energy all the time. There was even um, during the 1992 VMAs, you can still find this clip on YouTube. It's kind of amazing. So they're about to go on and they're going to play lithium at the 1992 VMAs hosted by Dana Carvey, I believe. And they're, they talked to MTV bef- beforehand and they're like, we're going to play this song rape me, which wasn't even out yet. It's 1992. That's going to be on in utero, but they already had it written. And MTV's like, uh, no, please don't do that. And they're like, no, we're going to do it. And then they're like, if, if you do that, we will, you know, we'll have to let go this dear friend of yours who works on our staff. Um, I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but this is some of the stuff that I found. And um, they're like, fine, we won't. And so right when the live camera shows them right there, they start playing Rape Me. They start doing it. The live camera's going and MTV are at the switchboard and they're about to cut away. They're about to cut away from the song. And they they do like the first, you know, rape me, rape me, my friend. And then right then they stop and they switch over to lithium. And I thought, oh, my God. Everybody in that control room just shit their pants. You know what I mean? This again, you know, that word is a uncomfortable word to this day. But back then, um, just people were really pushing boundaries of what could be said in songs and the content. And so I'm sure that everybody was like, what did they just say? What did they just say? And then they went into lithium. So that was a very memorable story. Oh, and at the end, this is the crave, uh, the famous uh, Chris Novoselic. Chris Novoselic, uh, the bass player, is like six foot seven. He's huge. And, you know, they're always smashing their instruments and, and going getting crazy on stage. And so he would throw his bass guitar like 20 feet in the air. He would throw it way up high and then he would catch it. So they're at the end of this performance on the MTV Video Music Awards. And he does that same thing where he throws the bass in the air. But there's stage lights above him that he's not prepared for, and he cannot see it come back down. And it just comes and just collides with his forehead. And you can see this on the live broadcast. It hits him in the forehead, and he just get he just gets knocked to the floor. And he's like stumbling around on stage as they're finishing up. Kurt's jamming his guitar head into the amp. You know, Dave Grohl's just in his own world over there. And and yeah, yeah, that was the Nirvana energy, right? You would witness stuff like this. Them starting this controversial song, you know, bass slamming into people's heads. This was what it was like to see them. Um, 
So then we move on to like Polly, and I believe that is that the one that is Polly is the only one that has the Chad Channing, so not Dave Grohl's drums on it. I think that's from the original demo, so I think it's the only track on the album that he's on. Um, then you have that famous uh, 1960s hippie anthem, Come on, people now, smile on your brother, at the beginning of Territorial Pissings. Um, Chris Novoselic sings that kind of out of key at the beginning. So that was that was a throwback to that hippie anthem. Um, I don't have a ton of details about the rest of the songs on the album other than, you know, uh, Stay Away, I think, on the demo was called Pay to Play. <laughs> I think that was the original title. Lounge Act, I think that was one of the songs written about Toby Vale from Bikini Kill. Um, and we all know something in the way now. Oh, man. I got to tell you, Batman... Thanks a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's cool that you're using Nirvana in your movie, but it's just so funny how that song really, really, uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like the air got sucked out. You know, the, the, the balloon got deflated a little bit on something in the way. That was such a cool um, closing track on that album, and then it just got blasted everywhere because the latest Batman movie. And there's that really hilarious video that somebody sent me on TikTok where it's this like, 13 year old kid and he's like you guys need to listen to this classic oldie song and he plays something something in the way by nirvana and i was like but you know what he's not wrong because it was 1991 it was a long ass time ago that was 30 31 years ago and i i go that's fair you know as much as it pains my generation to be referred to as an old oldie classic whatever it hurts i know it hurts it really does because i still feel like i'm 15 16 17 years old in the 90s and i'm still living living the dream baby but the truth is you look at that comparison and you go 31 years okay what was 31 years before the 90s was the 1960s you know you're sitting there in 1995 and you go, if somebody was to play you something from 1965, you'd be like, oh, this is classic rock. This is like old school. This is what my dad listens to. So I guess what we can be happy about is that teenagers now are discovering Nirvana. You know, they're hearing it from a young age. And by the way, earlier I said that if you're young and it's always been there, that doesn't take away from the magic of loving Nirvana. You can be a, a kid now who discovers Nirvana and you love them and they're amazing. It doesn't matter if that song has always been there. I think it's just me trying to put into perspective why it was such a big deal. It was such a big deal. Um, and and I think sometimes people try to take away from that. I've caught many times people being like, yeah, it wasn't that big of a shift. It was a big shift. Right before Nirvana, we were, bands were soloing. You know what I mean? People were playing guitar solos and had big long hair and shirts off on stage and you know the biggest bands on guns and roses was was huge huge and nirvana unraveled all of that all of a sudden everybody was looking at the bands they were listening to the motley crews the gnrs the you know warrants and the poisons and the def leopards and all those which are great in their own right i had those albums i liked guns and roses i had appetite for destruction now Axl Rose is a problematic dude, and he was especially back then. Um, and Kurt Cobain hated him. <laughs> he got asked, 
Kurt Cobain got asked if Nirvana would go on tour with him, and he said no because of homophobic comments that he had said in songs and just just hated that dude. Um, you know, there's even a story about Kurt Cobain seeing, I think it's at the Video Music Awards, it's some, some award show, and he saw the piano set up there for November Rain, and he spit on it spit on the keys thinking, oh yeah, well Axel's going to be playing this. So he spit on it. And then he found out later that it was the piano that Elton John was going to play. So he was like, my bad. I'm going to spit on Axel's piano, not Elton John's. I've got no beef with Elton John. So, but we get back to the, the album and you know, the cover can't forget talking about the cover. That's a big part of this. Um, everybody knows about the naked baby. I literally, I remember when I said something to, I said to my kids, I said, oh, I just bought the Nirvana record. And my youngest, my seven-year-old, he goes, is that the one with the naked baby on it? It's like, yep. No matter what, you know that. You know, if you don't know anything about Nirvana, you know that there's a naked boy, baby boy, swimming after a dollar on a hook. That's uh, That kind of sums up a really 90s message, which is like, we're born to chase money and the corporate dream and it's all pointless and we're going to just drown in the water like this baby. Uh, so it, it did its job, right? It's an album that you never forget. But it's worth mentioning, I'm sure you know, so stupid, the kid who played, I mean played, who was the baby in the photo, you know, his litigation against the band, I just don't buy it. That's just my personal opinion. If you're friends, you're listening to this Spencer, Spencer Eldon, um, I just, you know, he was in this photo and then for most of his life, he tattooed, you know, stuff on his chest, took pictures with people dressed up in a costume of like translute, you know, made it look like he was a naked baby, loved every minute of it. And just recently he went after them for money and said that it was basically child pornography and tried to sue them. And I think, you know, I think it's been dismissed, but it keeps coming back again. And I'm like, eh, I don't buy it, you know? Sounds like a cash grab to me. That's just my my opinion on that. But um, the the photo came about at the time Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl were watching. <laughs> they saw like a birthing video and they wanted the cover of the album to have an actual like birth, like a real water birth. Um, yeah, it was water birthing videos. And they wanted to have a water birth where actually the baby was like coming out of the vagina and the label was like, no. <laughs> and they were like, they, I think they even found an image that was like a, a from this organization that had water births that they could license. And the group was like, it was an image that maybe was, was they could find a way to make it work where it wouldn't be too graphic. But the image costs like $7,500 a year to license it for the album. And they're like, nah. So they went out and they shot, they went to a, a, a baby, a newborn swimming class. And they, the photographer shot the picture of a girl, baby girl, and a baby boy. And actually, I believe the photographer liked the one of the baby girl more, liked the way it turned out more. But I don't know who was the one who said, got to have the penis, got to have that baby penis in there. And I don't think it was for perverse reasons. I think it was just, you know, it was like part of the whole picture. Um, I'd, I'd like to believe that. I'd like to believe that it wasn't for perverse reasons, that it was just, it added just a little something um, something. <laughs> Look, man, I'm a father of boys and, uh, 
I'm a father of boys. And so little baby penises when you're a dad or something like that are really funny to me because it is such a, it's such a humorous thing when you raise children. Um, it's one of those things that just, it's, it's funny, but I, I do realize there are messed up people in the world and, and maybe you would look at that and go, well, that's not appropriate. But I, 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 in my heart of hearts, I do think it's an artistic expression. I think it's an artistic piece. I think it's meant to be a commentary on us as, as a society of about how we're raised and they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong because we are raised to chase that mighty dollar. And uh, Nirvana was the band. who was going to shake us out of it and be like, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that anymore. But there was, um, you know, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's, I don't know if I said anything here today about nevermind that really was like, wow, I never knew that. I never knew that. Um, it certainly stirred up the world. It really did. Um, Kurt Cobain's voice is so uniquely his. You hear that voice, and when he screams, it just sounded. It just sounded like he'd been, you know, like he'd been just like chewing on sandpaper <laughs> or something. There was a gravelness, a, a graininess to it that just seemed to never end. It never diminished. You know how when sometimes people scream, it like kind of falls down, it like comes down or it was just so consistently his sound. And then he would sing softly and then was just as powerful, you know, like on something in a way he's like underneath the bridge. It's like so soft and you're like, but it's still really powerful to me. One of the amazing things about Butch Vig who worked on, who produced, never mind Butch Vig. Butch Vig is one of the biggest record producers of all time. Um, and he was huge in the 90s with guys like Steve Albini and drawing a blank on others. But Butch Vig was a big deal. And he's the drummer of the band Garbage, if you didn't know that. Butch Vig played in Garbage. But most of this was recorded in sound studios in Van Nuys, which I've been to. And he was so instrumental in making this album come together the way that it did. And the sound that you're hearing, he made Kurt sing twice to layer up his vocals. And um, he was, her Kurt was very hesitant because these guys were, you know, indie rock bands don't play by the rules, want things to sound rough. Don't want things to be too polished. You know, Butch was like, you should layer your vocals. And when you hear the vocals on Nirvana, they are they're really powerful because it's him singing twice. And what's cool is every time that um, Kurt would push back on layering vocals, be like, no, Butch Vig would go. John Lennon did it. John Lennon did double vocals. And that would always get Kurt to go. Okay, I guess in an interview in 93, Kurt Cobain said that the referred to never never mind as a candy ass record. So I think he was never really pleased at how polished it was. And that's the funny thing about Nirvana is those are pop songs disguised by distortion and screams and heavy drums. Really, if you if you were to take all the scream and all the heavy rock out of a lot of the songs on Nevermind, sing them to yourself. Sing the melodies, the harmonies, the the choruses. They're, if you imagine like a pop singer singing those, you'd be like, oh my God, that's a hook for a pop song. That's like a catchy, you know, something you would hear from the 1960s maybe. And it's just being disguised by this grunge sound that they're coming up with. Um, that was one thing I wanted to talk about in the studio. And then another thing, which was kind of cool, was 
they were done with the the sessions recording everything and they're listening back to the mixes and Nirvana, you know, Kurt, everybody's not very happy with the way the mixes sound and even Butch is not happy with the mixes. And so they brought in a dude who mixed Slayer's um, season, the seasons in the abyss and they brought him in to do some mixes. And, you know, one of the band members, it might've been Chris was like, um, Oh yeah, that dude does super heavy stuff. So that'll be great. And the guy came in and really altered the drums and the guitar and made them so much heavier and richer. And everybody was pretty happy with those mixes. Um, another connection is Slayer. You know, I, I talked about in my Allison Chains um, Dirt episode about how Tom Mariah went out into the desert with the band and recorded, you know, that untitled track, the I Am Iron Gland on the album. So another connection to Slayer. Slayer, you just were popping up all over grunge music back in the early 90s. Um, but that's Nirvana's Nevermind. And we all know that we lost Kurt Cobain in, uh, you know, April 5th, and that was 1994. And I don't know how much time I should spend on that on this episode because that wasn't even happening. You know, this was just Nevermind, baby. This was an exciting time. We didn't know that that was going to come. We didn't know that that was going to happen. All we knew was music was changing and, you know, I was putting on clothes that I could get away with. I was putting on grungy clothes that my parents wouldn't be like, go change right now. <laughs> I did have one of those households, you know, like I had, I had flannel, I had some concert t-shirts, but I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to go, go full grunge. You know, I didn't have the Doc Martens. Doc Martens, you could see a Doc Martin because they had the yellow um, thread around the bottom. That was a, that was an absolute Doc Martin um, combat boot. And you could see, you could spot them a mile away. And my parents were like, how much are these? No, we're not buying those. We're not buying you these, these shoes that everybody wants to have. So I never had Doc Martens. I couldn't have the yellow thread guys. I had to have just regular combat boots that probably cost like $15 from Dickies. (laughs) <laughs> but that made me more counterculture, right? Kurt would have loved that because <laughs> I wasn't buying Doc Martens. And then, um, yeah, I had I had the I had the wardrobe and the the whole, you know, attitude that I tried to have at the time. Who am I kidding? Look at me, guys. I was still a goober, even when I was trying to be cool and listen to Nirvana. I, I you could see right through that. But that's a lot of cool stuff, right? I was listening back to my last episode of Dirt and I was like, I got to be careful not to just sit here and list off like historical dates and info about recording. I got to make it engaging. I hope please leave comments if you want me to, um, you know, just talk a little bit about the experience more or, you know, I don't know. I want to make this show enjoyable for you guys. And I love talking about the band. I do spend time making sure I have a lot of the facts and stuff ready to go. Um, so that I can share these specific things. It's not like I'm walking around all the time just with like September 24th, 1991 in my brain. I just make sure I get those, you know, right. I remember basically the time of year, but I'm like, before I get here, just make sure you look things up and make sure, okay, yeah, that's accurate. That's an accurate piece of information. So I could get things wrong or I I could also get too caught up in like, I got to tell you the facts when really a lot of this is just such a personal this is what the the feeling was. This was what the energy was at the time. But um, Nirvana's never mind. What a record! People have often asked you, uh, ask people online. People say, which one is better, Pearl Jam's Ten or Nirvana's Never Mind? And I'm like, man, just different, just different. I I this whole better or worse thing. I love Pearl Jam's Ten, and I'm gonna do 
a future episode on that album because it was also very um, exciting for me at the time. But I'll never forget the first time I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit. I'll never forget the first time I played Nevermind Start to Finish. I'll never forget my cousin looking at me and saying, that's just rude. He's giving you the finger. I'll always remember that moment. Christmas, 1991. So that's been Nirvana's Nevermind. Thanks for joining me on this uh, trip down memory lane on Waterproof Records. Once again, please subscribe to the show. Please tell your friends. Spread the word. Say, hey, you want to know a guy who knows a thing or two about music? It's this uh, this Jacob Givens character. He's got a thing or two to say. And uh, yeah, let, let your friends know. Subscribe. Check me out on YouTube. Check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, uh, wherever you get your Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Just do it, man. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time on Waterproof Records. Things are going to change. I can feel it. It just going to be that kind of fun.